I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. Christopher Clark was a theater professor. I want to begin with three facts about Chris. The first is that he was downright crazy about people, above all, his family. The second, he was also downright crazy about Shakespeare. And the third item is that at age 43, he was diagnosed with ALS, which for many years was routinely referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. As a degenerative condition, ALS comes with a highly variable prognosis in terms of life expectancy, but the end of life comes typically two to four years after diagnosis. Upon learning about Chris's devastating news, his friends responded with genuine support, but not in the ways you might expect. And all of his good friends just treated him the same, whether he could talk or move or not, and it, which was the greatest gift. Not what you think when you ask, hey, is there anything I can do for you uh, when you're terminally ill? It's like, yeah, make fun of me? How about that? Yeah, don't treat me like a precious little pumpkin. As Chris Clark faced a terminal diagnosis, he wanted humor to play just as big a role in his life as it always had, which is to say a very big part. In this episode, you'll learn about the role of humor in the lives of both Christopher and Lisa Clark. They were married for 25 years, by the way, and that's her voice you've just heard. But today, you'll also learn about something even more meaningful, something unexpected that happened to Chris's worldview as ALS ran its course and his body gradually shut down. Here's Lisa again. She'll help us see how his physical paralysis actually heightened his sense of awe about being in the world. For one thing, he marveled more about having a body. So here she is relaying what Chris himself said. Just to think, I sat up and walked and never considered what a miracle it was my whole life until now that I can't do it. And I'm so grateful. I see so many things like that. About just there's miracles everywhere. And I didn't realize it, but now I get to see it, and I see it. And he wanted to be a witness to it. Lisa Valentine Clark has an office door right next to my own. Because we both work here at BYU Radio, where she's host of The Lisa Show, another podcast that originates here. She has spoken frequently, and I have to say fearlessly, in a broad range of public settings about her husband's death ever since he passed away in 2020. And yet just recently, Lisa told me something that honestly stopped me in my tracks. You know, it's really interesting caring for someone who is dying after it happens, right? After the loved one passes. The questions that I get, People want to talk about, how did you get through it? You know, how do you wake up and get going and put one foot in front of the other? And no one ever asks about, well, what did you learn or notice as they were dying? Or tell me about that sense of sort of awe and wonder about the totality of your life or just the beauty of this world as you're slowly saying goodbye. No one ever asks about that. And it's so funny because when I think back about those moments, I think of them as like special sort of sacred moments just between me and Chris, like where I was able to observe him, like observing the mountains in a different way or 
um, our kids interacting in a different way or, you know, when he wrote a poem about where we live and talked about the trees that he had planted with such reverence, it was something special. And I don't know how to talk about that or bring that up (laughs) with other people other to say, it was really special, you guys. (laughs) But I see the world in a different way now. I do. He left that for me, and it's such a gift. What Lisa discovered is that as his capacity to move and operate in this world slowly diminished, the awe Chris felt for the world around him increased. Lisa exudes humor, cheerfulness, goodwill. She's always brought an upbeat spirit to her work, and comedy plays a big part in her personality. Just listen to the way she introduces herself on her show. Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm a writer, actor, producer, widowed single mom of five, devoted online shopper, and I'm always on the hunt for the ultimate nacho. Chris, too, even with all his serious book learning about all things Shakespeare, never took himself or others too seriously. Here he is two years before his diagnosis, back in 2014, lecturing at Utah Valley University where he taught, talking about the right stuff to become an actor. As a child, I was not really one of those kids that you see a lot of times that loves to get up and perform. I wasn't that outgoing. I was just kind of a normal kid. And it's interesting. A lot of times people will say to me, oh, you've got to meet my granddaughter, or you've got to meet my son. He is an actor. He loves to get up and sing and dance in front of people and show off. And I always want to say, that doesn't make him an actor. That just makes him kind of irritating. But I don't ever say that (laughs) because, because I think that would hurt feelings. People were just drawn to him, always, his whole life, even when he was a little boy, because he was so quick to laugh and to look on the bright side and just to make fun with, out of anything, with whoever was in proximity. He was a real gatherer like that. Lisa and Christopher met in college here at BYU, where they were both cast members in a couple of plays put on by the English department. He was on a theater scholarship, but he thought it would be more practical to be an English major, (laughs) which I know I can hear the collective English majors of the world laughing, (laughs) myself included. We reached out to Chris's best friend, who appeared with Chris and Lisa in one of these college productions. Here's Ken Craig. In the fall of 1995, Chris and I and Lisa were cast in uh, the play Ordinary People. This was not a main stage play. This was an English Society production, which did not mean we did not bring our A-game, but it did mean that the audience was about 12 people on a good night. And this is not a funny play, but it became funny to us because of the low attendance and because we were such good friends. It kind of became a game to try to break each other on stage. There was one scene in particular where Chris would come in and Lisa and I were sitting at a table and he started bringing in sodas and we would all drink while we did the scene. Then Chris started bringing them in going, hey, 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 three sodas for three sodaholics, which I don't know where that came from, but sodaholic became an uh, inside joke for the rest of our lives. And at one night, Chris Bodden goes, hey, 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 three, three sodas for three sodaholics. And I said, what, no RC? 
which if you're familiar with RC Cola, it's like the pariah of colas. Like if you're at a cola party and RC speaks up, you're like, and you are, nobody drinks RC Cola. Well, Chris went out and found one and then started bringing that in as the prop going, hey, 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 three sodas for three soda holics, and here's an RC Cola for you. And I never opened that can. And it became an ongoing gift that we would give each other on birthdays and at Christmas. It was this singular can of RC Cola that lasted several years, even after we moved out of state. I don't know whatever happened to that RC Cola. I like to think that one late night, Chris just didn't have any other cola in the house, and he caved and drank that RC Cola. Ken Craig, whom Lisa describes as Chris's best friend, confidant, and memory keeper. We'll hear from him yet again later this hour. You know, though, sometimes people who are funny are masking some pain, and I was curious about whether that was the case with Chris. So I asked Lisa if that jovial, fun-loving, gregarious social magnet was for real. Oh, yeah. It wasn't the put-on. It wasn't. And in fact, it, this is funny because I had, after I had known him for about a year, and we just immediately, as soon as we met, we were just really good friends. We were friends for about a year before we started dating, and he made me laugh so hard. And we would just go on these crazy sort of adventures. I can't even call them dates. And there was always a lot of people around. But I remember we had a mutual friend that said, this guy can't be this uncomplicated and happy all the time. He probably has a deep, dark secret. And as I got to know him, I just thought, no, there's no deep, dark secret. What you see is what you get. And later he, he said, you know, I got that a lot, but he would say, I'm not that smart to be like duplicitous. I can't pull it off, you know? And so what you saw was what you got with him. It was kind of funny because at church or at work or at school or with his friends, he was the same person. So you can imagine sometimes that fit well and sometimes it didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it confused people. Before Chris finished college, he had read all of Shakespeare, all of it, which is really going above and beyond, even for an English major. He loved directing and examining texts and interpreting it, and I liked the opposite. I liked to improv on film, say it once and forget it, <laughs> move on. So we were kind of opposites in that sense, even though we loved the same yeah, yeah. craft. So uh, at some point, you decided, as fun-loving people, to get serious. Yeah, as serious as we could. Yeah. How'd that go? Really fast. We had been friends for about a year, and then we were approaching our senior year at, at Brigham Young University, and we just started signing up for each other's classes. He'd say, you sign up for these theater classes, and I'll sign up for these English classes so that we could just take all of our classes and see each other every day. This is before cell phones and things like that, you know? And so we were just together all of the time. And then there was um, a concert that we wanted to go to, Sean Colvin, and David Gray was opening. And he said, I want to take you to this concert, and I don't want Rebecca to come, which was my best friend. Because <laughs> again, <laughs> we just did everything in this big fun group. I want to take you alone. And I told Rebecca, and she's like, I knew this day would come. It was pretty fast after that because we were already together all of the time. So here you are together. You're poised for life together. You get married. Hopes, dreams, aspirations, professional plans. What were you going to be? I remember the night that we got engaged, 
thinking and telling him out loud, like, we're going to have the funnest life. What a naive thing to say. But I really felt it. And you know what? We really did. It felt like we were getting away with something. I mean, at the time, he really didn't know what he was going to do. He was thinking, maybe I'll go to law school. We wanted to have a family, and we knew that there were certain sacrifices that we needed to make for that. Um, We knew that we loved acting, but I was training to be a high school English teacher. So we didn't think we could get away with it, to be honest. You just said that you had explicitly said to each other, we are going to have fun. Oh, yeah. And both of you are very capable when it comes to humor. And so did you see yourselves going into, aside from just like having fun and and telling jokes privately, showcasing humor together? Did you? Did you? No. We did. I mean, professionally, we didn't think that that was probably going to happen. So we would have these conversations like, well, if you could do anything that you wanted to, what would you do? But we started off pretty practical. Christopher started working retail and doing really, really well and uh, managing a Barnes & Noble and found himself hating it and hating life and getting those Sunday night blues where you're just like, ugh, I have to go to work tomorrow. and. And I just thought, well, we don't want to live our lives like this. Like, you don't want 40 more years of that. By this point, they had a couple small children, and Lisa was teaching English online to high school and junior high kids. I asked her if she was funny as a teacher. I'll tell you what, my kids didn't think I was, but that is the best place to hone your humor. I'm not (laughs) kidding, because that is the toughest crowd you'll ever... Give me your biggest flop. From teaching? From teaching with seventh graders. Oh, my gosh. I used to do the Schoolhouse Rock videos because I was like, okay, we're going to learn parts of speech. So I'm going to sing these songs in front of you to do it. And I am like doing it and I'm dancing and I'm singing in front of them to get them to know what an adverb is. And cricket, cricket, no expression on their faces. They look totally embarrassed for me on my behalf. And I just kept going. <laughs> and that has been a theme in my life. Just keep going. Just keep if, going. It, because you can't do it halfway because they'll eat you alive. Okay. you got to commit because I thought, well, they'll make fun of me, but they'll know what an adverb is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't care. <laughs> that's a worthy cause Yeah, right thank there. you. I don't know think their so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be like, remember how dumb Mrs. Clark was? What an idiot. But I know what an adverb is. And I've done my, done my job. She can laugh now about her career back then. But back in those days, the Clarks were finding things pretty tough in a whole lot of ways. For one important thing, Chris wasn't happy with his job. He just thought, I'm not using my talents, and I'm not using what, yeah. like, I was really put on this earth to do, and I, and, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And then we heard about a master's program in staging Shakespeare that our friends were going to, and we got super excited and started asking a lot of questions. So the serious student who had read every word written by Shakespeare, the the wannabe director and scholar, off to England with his wife for grad school? Yeah, master's in staging Shakespeare. He wanted to study under one of the top three Shakespeare experts in the world, and he happened to be at Exeter University. And we both just felt from head to toe, oh, this is is what we've been waiting for. And, And, you know, I've had... I haven't had a lot of experiences like this in my life. Maybe like three or four of where I could see into the future. 
And we were at a party, and we were hearing about this master's program. And when we were driving home that night, I said to Chris, did you feel what I felt when we were talking to to Matt about that? And Chris is like, oh, yeah, I didn't even want to say anything to you because I, I, I really want to go. And I said, you know what? You're going to apply. You're going to get in, and we're going to move to England. And he's like, do you think so? And I said, 100% we are. This is what we're doing. You know, I like to feel those moments where there's clarity yeah, because you don't get them very often. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard you tell a story about Christmas in Exeter. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind sharing that with <laughs> us again? Sure. Oh, we'll never forget that Christmas in Exeter. So we were we were just determined to get our kids a Christmas tree. And in England, they don't really such an American thing. Not everyone takes a pine tree and puts it in their home. A lot of the shops had it outside their house or like on the wall, like sticking out. And Christopher was like, I'm getting my kids a Christmas tree. And I was like, okay, well, here we go. And so we found one. It was really hard to get it home, but we set it up. We thought it was so great. And our kid, Owen, is really precocious. And at that time was about almost two years old and kept pulling the Christmas tree over onto him. And like, it was a big joke, trying to entertain his parents, as you might imagine. And it was just this, this Charlie Brown Christmas tree to begin with. And on Christmas Eve, we're getting everything ready and we have our little meager presents laid out as we're students and will be for the next several years. Um, the tree is just falling apart. I mean, there are needles everywhere. It's brown. It looks so horrible. So Christopher took it and threw it away. And so in the morning, Christmas morning, our boys run down the stairs and they, you know, are excited because it's Christmas. But they say, oh, where is the, where's the tree? And Christopher just on his toes, because this is you know, how he does it just says, oh, Santa Claus took it away and replaced it with presents. And they were like, oh, cool. You know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. They're two and almost four. You know, <laughs> they're like, yeah, cool. Totally that's checks that's out. That's the Santa job. Yeah, that's it. And Christopher and I looked at each other like, that was so cool. We didn't even talk about it ahead of time. And you figured it out and you said it. And that was so rad. And then later that day, <laughs> the next that you just day. Dated, you just dated yourself with rad. I know. I know. I can't stop it. We decided to go on a walk by the beach because we live on the coast on Christmas Day. <laughs> we get the kids' little jackets on. We go around and we go around the corner and there's dead Christmas tree by the side of the house, like in plain sight. We have to walk by it to go to the beach. And our oldest, Miles, was like, uh, Dad, uh, is that our... And he's like, yeah, it's just, it's dead. Come on, we're going to the beach. <laughs> Come on. Like, totally bugged. When taken out of his sails, can't think of anything clever. We just thought it was so funny. And later on, like, well, there's no fooling the children. <laughs> I'm Marcus Smith here on Constant Wonder. Today, we're chatting with my colleague, Lisa Valentine Clark, and I hope you've already gotten a sense for what a fun couple she and her husband, Chris, were as young marrieds and young parents. Now that you've met them, we'll jump ahead to 2016, when Chris got his diagnosis of ALS. 
which is a neurodegenerative disease of the immune system. It brings paralysis as the body shuts down over a period of a couple years. In Chris's case, he gradually lost the use of his legs, then quickly also the use of his arms. But it all began back in 2015, when he developed something of a strange limp. It would be really nice to have your complete life story someday. But we're going to go uh, right to some of the rough material of the, the diagnosis. Uh, your children are how old about when? Uh, how, how, how far is your family down the road from marriage when the ALS diagnosis comes? So uh, we have five children at this point, and our oldest is uh, 18, or almost 18, and our youngest is eight. So about so we've had five kids in 10 years from 8 to 18 when we figure out the diagnosis conclusively. Now, would it be okay if we just established that this was a major curveball? Oh, yeah. And completely subversive of your plans for that happy life you described. One thing I think that people don't understand is it's really hard to diagnose ALS because there's not a conclusive test. I mean, you can take a, a mu muscle biopsy, but most people don't do that. You just rule out other things. So there was a period of time between about three and four months where we didn't say anything to anyone. People could tell he was walking just a little weird with a little bit of a drag in one leg, but he could hide it for the most part. And we slowly did MRIs, blood tests, scans, every everything to rule out things. And he thought, until we know, you know, until we know what it is, I don't want to hint around about anything because that will worry people. Once there seemed to be a pretty conclusive diagnosis, or at least that was yeah. what was you were, you said, okay, we're going to call it ALS. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, was it then just like, okay, I'll tell people. Yeah. It, I mean, it was a little bit more kind of took our breath away for a minute. Obviously, it was all we could think about, and we didn't want to worry the children or our friends. They knew that we were getting tests for something and that we would tell them what it was when we found out. And we had a, a moment where he was away at a conference in Canada, and I was at home, and we had both just been praying about it and thinking about it, and we had both individually just sort of received kind of that clarity of like, this is what it's going to be. You know, it's going to be ALS. And when he came home from that trip, we looked at each other like, yeah, we know what it is. But there were still a couple more tests we could do. But I always look back to that point as, oh, that's when we knew. But we couldn't say anything to anyone for about two weeks. Just, I, I couldn't fathom it. That this was really going to be my reality. And I knew, and I knew, and so did Chris, that once you tell people, they're going to treat you differently and your life will never be the same. I knew that I was putting a cap on my children's childhood. I knew that life would always be before and after that moment. So we sat with it for a while. I mentioned earlier how Lisa has spoken in public with great candor and vulnerability about their family's story, how they went about facing Chris's illness. 
She addressed the full campus community here at BYU in 2021, and in her remarks, she drew on her experience doing improv. The guiding principle of improv is yes and. It means that you accept whatever's offered to you on stage and then you add something to it. That's it. You don't deny it. You don't question it. You just take it and move forward. And there are a million ways to do this. For example, you might walk onto stage and with nothing but a suggestion like a non-geographic location or a relationship between two people, you would start the scene with an action. You might be miming like a sweeping action, but the other actor might interpret it as curling. You know, that sport in the Olympics. But both are right. It doesn't matter. Whatever the other says, you accept it and add to it. According to Lisa, a yes-and attitude in life can help with the grief process. Now, while most of us won't find ourselves facing a terminal disease, we all have moments when we need to find a way to live with a bad offering. And while we are most notably aware of the no's in our lives, focusing on the yes-ands can be used as a tool to move forward and focus our grieving hearts on the reality of our situations and what we have to work with, our yes-and. It's a generous thing, Lisa, to go and take this intense aspect of your life history and put it out there for people. I know what that is, and I value that. So thank you. Thank you. Having said that, is the this is what resilience looks like aspect of the that kind of narrative, does that, does that wear on you? Does that, does that get old? Like, do I have to talk about resilience again? I'm certainly not the only one who's, only one who's suffered. Um, I think everyone would say that they meet this idea, ironically, with resistance, meaning that if we could all go back and not choose it, we, we would. Obviously. If I could snap my fingers and have Chris here and not have him had suffered, I would. One particular form of resistance that Chris and Lisa mounted to this diagnosis was to continue to laugh, to step outside of the illness and laugh at it. Chris did this all the time, and in one especially memorable instance, he did it with a video posted on Instagram. This was for Halloween in 2018. He and a cousin recreated the Putting on the Ritz performance by Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle in the Mel Brooks' brilliant film Young Frankenstein. Now, since his diagnosis, which came in 2016, he had at first used a cane, then wheeled himself in a wheelchair, and now... Fall 2018, he was using a motorized wheelchair, having lost nearly all functionality of his arms and hands. So, you know, when you're terminally ill, people are always like, oh, what can we do for you? What can I do for you? And people are expecting casseroles or come and, you know, clean the house or something like that. For Chris, it's things like, take me on a helicopter ride and make this funny video with me. So he had his cousin, Ryan Simmons, who's the other person in the video, he said, I have this idea. He said, my voice is going, and I know it's not long, and it's really funny. It sounds like Frankenstein, and I want to make fun of it, and I want to give people permission to laugh at my voice, so I want to do this like kind of young Frankenstein video, black and white. He had one of our friends who's a makeup artist come in and dress him up like Frankenstein. Those sutures on his forehead. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That makeup job is no That's joke. That's a good makeup job. <laughs> his cousin Ryan got the backdrop and all this. I mean, it was a major production, but it was something to think about and plan and to laugh about. And at that time, like, yeah, he couldn't move his feet or his hands. And so you'll see that Ryan, who is just such a sweet friend, and all of his good friends just treated him the same. Like, ugh, you're not standing up for, you know, 
the national anthem, rude, get up. Like, who do you think you are? They just treated him the absolute same, whether he could talk or move or not, and it, which was the greatest gift. Again, not what you think when you ask, hey, is there anything I can do for you uh, when you're terminally ill? It's like, yeah, make fun of me. How about that? Yeah, don't treat me like a precious little pumpkin. Um, so in this video, he put his hands on the, the cane so that it looks like he can move them. Ryan's the one that's lifting up the pant leg to make it look like he's tap dancing. Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Mutton on the reds. <laughs> Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Zibber, zibber. Um, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with... Actually, Ryan took it very, very seriously, and Chris kept, like, ruining all the takes because he was laughing so hard, and he couldn't, like, get a deep breath. And Ryan was like, oh, my gosh, be a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that video on several levels. So, Lisa, you may have to uh, qualify this if I don't get it quite right. I'm going to try to do a little summary here. It seems like Chris was able to get outside the confines of the disease, to hold it up, scrutinize it, Wonder about everything happening to him using humor, which I guess forces most of us to have to confess that his outlook was highly unusual. Um, how would you characterize where the both of you were at the at the front end? Where were you emotionally at the beginning? There's no cure. That's what's so weird. There's no treatment. There's no hope of like, we're going to fight this for people like me and Chris who are optimists, who are hard workers, who are hustlers, who are like, let's fight. There's nothing to fight except for your own will against it of whether you're going to accept it or not. All I saw around me was tragedy. Oh, you're going to get worse every day. This is the worst. And he said, no, with help and with medical intervention, with all this adaptive equipment, let's not focus on this. Yeah, it's a tragedy, but let's live with this as long as we can. Let's have as many ordinary days. Yeah, I'm in a wheelchair and I talk funny, whatever, but like I still want to be a dad and I still want to go to church with my kids and I still want to tease them and their friends when they come home from school and we're still living life. It's just a little weird. He persisted in the maximal communication he was capable of yes. during all of this, whether it was machine-assisted, whether it was slow speech, whether it was signaling with gestures. He maxed out on what he could do in service of those aims and dreams and hopes. He always focused on what he could do as a way to pivot and didn't spend a lot of time lamenting what he couldn't do anymore. So when I first approached you and said something about our show, and awe. And then you said, oh, this is interesting because there was an increased capacity. I think these are your words. Yeah. He had an increased capacity to seize upon awe, to apprehend it, to notice it, to observe it, even as he was declining physiologically. Oh, yeah. I was so, sorry. I was so impressed by that. When I look back and think about what he leaned into, I have a sense of awe and wonder, how did he do that? So, so tell me what it was yeah. he was doing by leaning in. Everyone's comments, oh, he had such a positive attitude, but it's more than that. I know people who at the end of their lives have hung on to this. If I just have enough faith, I'll be healed. 
there will be that miracle and I'm going to hold on to it and, until I bleed so tightly, you know. And, and I know people who are like, oh, I'm just going to look on the bright side. But that wasn't Chris Clark's M.O. Instead, and this is really why we wanted to have this conversation with Lisa, it's what I was referring to at the top of this episode, the unusual and unexpected thing that happened in his worldview. Chris leaned in to the awe he felt, even as his physical capacity declined in his final months, weeks, then days. He can't move. He can't speak. He speaks with a a computer program like Stephen Hawking did. He's uncomfortable a lot of the days. He's slumping down. He needs 24-hour monitoring. He can't be left alone for lots of medical reasons. And he types jokes to my kids, teases them, and says things to me in private, like, I'm the luckiest man on earth. I don't think anyone has had a better life than I have. Even in this, this is just an addendum to this. But I feel like George Bailey. I have the best friends and family. Look how everyone's showing up for us. Look how everyone is expressing love to us. I am so lucky. I can't believe we have such great friends. And um, because we had to adapt the house and we had to put in ramps and a different addition, we had to cut down... (laughs) This tulip tree, this, again, we were so poor most of our lives. And Provo City, where we live, was giving away these free trees. And Chris was like, oh, we got to go get some. He wanted our whole house to be surrounded by trees and, and greenery. And his yard had to look a certain way. And he wanted to plant certain things. I mean, he was so persnickety <laughs> about it is the only word. And I just sort of let him do it. Like, I had no interest in it at all. Um, I just was like, whatever, you know, it just seems like a hassle to me. But yeah, it's real pretty. And we had planted this tree, and this tulip tree had just thrived in our backyard. It was gorgeous, and it had these huge, huge leaves on it. And he would talk about them all the time. <laughs> like, it was one of his kids. Like, he just took so much pride. You get these tree updates. The na- I did. <laughs> and he'd be like, I know it's expensive and we don't have a lot of money, but we really need to put, you know, iron supplements in the tree trunk in the front or else it's not going to thrive. And I was just was like, oh my gosh, this is his passion. I'll, you know, I'll allow it or whatever. We had to cut down that tulip tree, though, to make room for that addition. And it felt so cruel to both of us. I remember sitting in the kitchen and watching them cut it down and laughing at myself like you're crying over a tree. For me, that tree and to Chris was a symbol that nothing's going to be the same. It was that tree. (laughs) I'm crying over a tree like who am I? Um, Was kind of a metaphor for our hopes and dreams. Christopher had a different perspective on that. He had this sense of gratitude for what that tree had given us, and now it's time to move forward. He was always a lot better at that than I was. He expressed that relative to the tree. Yes. Yes, we're losing the tree, and yet there's something to be grateful for. Isn't it wonderful that we that our friends and family have come together to help us adapt it to make my life more comfortable. This tree is, you know, given its purpose and it's horrible. Like I wish we could like transplant it and and things, but I tended to linger a little bit longer in the tragedy (laughs) of it while he 
looked at all these moving pieces as serving a purpose and moving forward. Lisa, I, I want to invite you to talk about the little child, the toddler at church, and his observing <sighs> that child. And then I want to know how you or he or both of you together connected the dots, or maybe even after his passing, that his expressions of gratitude or his contact with what brought him awe, how, how that word may actually stick on the, this gratitude that you were talking about, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. It makes sense because I think that awe is, I know it is, it's connected to a different perspective that you have. And he had a unique perspective and that he was evaluating the totality of his life in a very real way. He was preparing to die. And so he was looking at his whole life, all of his relationships and his experiences and thinking, did I drink it up enough? Am I seeing this the right way? So we were sitting in church and our family culture is we just want to steal all the babies in church. We want to hold babies and we try to get their attention and make them laugh and to kind of, and so Christopher would always try to get little babies to crawl over to him. And there was a little baby that we were watching and he was trying to like with his eyes, like be like, make them really bright so that the kid would want to come over. And it was a new little baby that was just learning how to walk. And so she would get up and then she'd fall down and get up and kind of take a couple wobbly steps and sit down. And Christopher was so overwhelmed by what a miracle that was. He, he kept using the word miracle. He said, you know, I can't even sit up. Like I can't even use my muscles and my torso. And when I think of all of the synapses and muscle connections and muscle memory and muscles and coordination with the brain and signaling to all the different parts of the body it takes to walk, to stand up, to take a walk. He's like, what a miracle that is. Look at that baby learning how to walk is a literal miracle. There's too many things that could go wrong in in just doing that. And he goes, just to think I sat up and walked and Never considered what a miracle it was my whole life until now that I can't do it. And I'm so grateful. He goes, I see so many things like that. About just there's miracles everywhere. And I didn't realize it now, but now I get to see it. And I see it. And he wanted to be a witness to it. It sounds from the way you describe this that he himself observed his own developmental progress yeah with a heightened capacity in this paradox of his decline. I, I absolutely think he did. And, you know, a lot of this was rooted in his, his faith and in, in his spiritual practice. He would say, I feel God's love. I feel God with me in this. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not being punished. He didn't have conflicting feelings about that. And he said, this is part of God's plan for me. So I know, I am confident that he has given me all of the tools and help that I need to do this because that's who God is. I don't need to learn a lesson. I don't need this, you know, ALS diagnosis to make me really realize what matters in life or to be a good husband or a good father or, or a good friend. No, he already was those things. And somehow that was so um, freeing for him to keep going. And he had such a sense of gratitude to that. 
we have this phrase of a blessing in disguise. And what I hear you saying is that he did not see ALS as a blessing in disguise. No, no. It was just a peril of existence. Yes. He said to me, we live in a fallen world. I believe that. No one knows what causes ALS. And in his mind and in my mind, it's probably a combination of an environmental trigger and a genetic, genetic predisposition or something like that. Something that we don't know that they'll find out in 10 years, hopefully, or sooner, I hope tomorrow. So he didn't have complicated questions about what does this all mean? He was, well, then how am I going to keep living? You know, he was a, a concert pianist. He was trained. And it was such a huge part of our lives. And I'll never forget the day when he was in a wheelchair. He could still talk. And we were still in that newlywed sort of idea of the disease of, of well, maybe it'll be super, super slow progressing. And you'll live with this for 10 years, 20 years or something. Um, we still didn't know. And he rolled up to the piano and he was just kind of playing a little bit. He had started to play a little softer, a little slower, and he closed the piano and he said, my piano playing days are over. And I said, no, no, I, like I was not ready because he could still play. And so I was really confused. And he said, I'm not as good and I can feel myself getting frustrated and I know it's going to get worse. It's not like I'm going to like move my muscles and they're going to get stronger, you know, and I'd rather go out having good memories and not being frustrated with. And, he's, and, and I was very upset because <laughs> I just wasn't ready. It was just still early. And um, he said, no, but Lisa, I'm just going to focus on all the things that I can still do. I can still teach. I can still direct plays. I can still write. I can still do all these things. He said, I don't want to be frustrated in trying to change reality, but I can still focus on what I still can do that is fulfilling to me. And he was so unemotional about it. He was not, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I get yeah. choked up just thinking about it. He was like, no, this is just how it is. Lisa Valentine Clark telling us about her late husband, Christopher. In just a moment here on Constant Wonder, we're going to hear about how Lisa managed to care for her husband during the pandemic because he no longer had the use of his arms or legs and they couldn't bring outside help into the house. I'm Marcus Smith. Two weeks ago, my father-in-law passed, and I was there with his last breath, so I closed his eyes. Oh, wow. And I just mention that because the experience of awe and sanctity, the sacred, and the convergence with those tragic moments is so vital to me personally that... You can't help but deal with the paradox that there is awe present with so much pain present. Yes. And that pain seems to seal that memory. It's like your body is saying, you need to remember this. This is, this is important. And um, I felt those moments. I've, I've felt those, those moments of just sort of like spiritual clarity just little slivers in taking care of him or my children amid so much pain. Can, can you paint a picture of taking care of him? Because you and I had a conversation yeah. before my father-in-law died yeah. where you were coaching me on how to take and help a human who is no longer able to move their limbs yeah. and how to 
manipulate and move the body. You 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 recommended different postures. You 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 mimed right out here in in the hall for me how to bend my legs and how to keep your back. And you were teaching me. So can you paint a picture of working with Chris? Chris was really cute because I mean he couldn't move anything. He's just dead weight, right? At a certain point, he couldn't even like help me pick him up or lift up his head or anything. And so sometimes it was very, um, you know, emotional. And I would just look at him like this, this person I love so much. And and it was sad and I would cry. And as I was taking care of him, <laughs> later he would type in his thing like, what are you crying about? And I'd be like, oh, the best person that I know on the planet. Oh, he has ALS. It's really sad. You want me to tell you about it? Like, what do you mean? What am I crying about? You said that he texted you. So uh, this was machine-assisted uh, eye movement. Yeah. So in order to communicate, we had to bring together a lot of different technology. It's really interesting. I think in the olden days, you know, someone would have sort of a pencil in their mouth and point to words like on a piece of paper. But um, Christopher, he had glasses with no lenses, and there was like a little magnetic dot It was really like a sticker on the bridge of the glasses on the frame um, on the outside of it. And that dot activated a cursor on the tablet when he looked at it. So at this time, movement for him and his body was very, very limited. But he could move his head back and forth, which is all he needed to control the cursor. And we would have to put a little... um, clicker, (laughs) that's the technical term, on his thumb, we had to wrap it around his thumb because he could move his right thumb. That was the only finger he could move. And so he would press down on that little clicker and it acted as the mouse. So when he moved his head slightly, the mouse on the screen would point to a word or a phrase on the tablet or a letter if he had to type it all out. And then he would click on it and you'd hear the computer voice say what he typed. And it was a laborious (laughs) process. And he got frustrated at first because we would be having a conversation. He'd want to jump in. But by the time he had a funny comment, we had moved on to the next... (laughs) subject. So we learned to stop and wait as he just sort of laughed to himself and laboriously typed out his message. Um, It was always worth the wait. I tried to make it less tragic and I would turn on music or I'd turn on a dumb TV show so that we could talk and I would tell him about the plot of a really dumb show. And I'd be like, well, you don't know, but Jessica is not being truthful. And then he would laugh and then we would make this two-hour process of getting ready, which was so, like, sad, um, you know, bearable. But at the end, when, because I would have help come in because I couldn't physically lift him. And then when the pandemic hit and we had to send everybody home, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to lift you up and I can't drop you and the stakes are high. And I was super stressed out. And we had this really great physical therapist and he gave me all these techniques and he would show me and video with me. I would say to Chris, like, this is too much. I don't want to hurt you, and the stakes are high, and I'm really tired. (laughs) And he would text me. He's like, you can do this. I know you can, and I'm going to be fine. And he had so much confidence in me, and I'll never forget that first time. So he's laying down in bed, and and you have to, like, get him up. There's so many different physical steps. My, (laughs) My muscles remember it. 
but I got him up and I'd have to swivel him around and put his shoes on and put him on this like disc and I would put his weight over one of my shoulders and then I'd pivot our whole body like with my hips over to his his wheelchair and then I'd gently lay him down with one hand, you know, on his neck so he wouldn't flop and I did it. And I looked, all I could do is like raise his eyebrows to make his eyes, he'd go as fast as he could, which was really slow. Like you did it, like he was so excited for me. You know, he didn't have to perform for me, but he did. And he just encouraged me with his eyes. And I was like, look at me, I'm incredible. Look how strong I am, you know, and speaking for him. I used to love to speak for him because it would make him laugh. It was like a puppet, you know, and he would laugh and laugh because I'd make him say ridiculous things. And encouraging me with those eyes, like, I think about it now, just, it meant the world to me. It just felt like a million bucks when he did that. And I just thought, yeah, I can do this. This isn't just tragedy. This shows how strong I am. And this is funny. And we can, we get on with our day now too. And we don't have to stop and just say, oh, isn't this the worst? We can move forward. I want to talk with you now though about the time since his passing and your capacity for awe. When did you say, I can again feel awe? Or did it ever go away? For me, grief has been a lot of high highs and low lows. And almost immediately after he passed, I had an overwhelming sense of just awe of his life in its totality, the evidence of a life well lived. I felt awe in a way I've never felt, you know, since of we should all live a life like this. We should all be so lucky. And I also felt the sense, and I feel this in moments, every once in a while, still, um, since his passing, these moments of what a gift, what a gift it is to be alive, what a gift it is to grow old, and um, that not everyone gets, and we don't have a lot of time. We think we have so much time on this earth. And there is something that is sort of um, awe-inspiring about how people, specifically Chris, choose to live their lives, choose to spend their time, choose to talk about their lives, that creates this, this sense of awe. And for me, it has looked less like productivity and more like asking myself the question, well, what does this mean, you know, in this moment? And certainly relationships are more important than anything else. And really it is all about love. And other sort of Things that when I say them, I know how they felt before. They feel trite. They feel like cliches. But when you combine that with seeing life the way that Chris saw it, he let me see life how he saw it, and I am better for it. During the pandemic, um, right before he died, you know, no one could come over. We were very, very isolated. He was not doing well. And he would sit in front of our window and write a poem about Rock Canyon, where we live, and how the mountains cracked open and our little neighborhood, the Edgemont neighborhood, spilled out into it. We're going to share that poem with you as we close out this episode on our podcast and web platforms. 
where it will be read by Chris's best friend, Ken Craig. And he would talk about what he wanted to plant next year. And he would talk about the different birds that would come by the window. And we would have deep conversations, especially at the very end. He would text people and ask them how they were doing. He would connect with other people. And it was interesting observing other people's sense of wonder about that. Like, is he for real? It was just like the questions that I got when I first met him. Like, is this for real? Is he really like that? So when I think back, and I, and I am in my deepest grief, and feeling very alone and missing him and that light that I was able to, you know, orbit for 27 years and then to suddenly be without it has not been easy. But I do feel that it doesn't honor him or the way that he really was by living in that space and staying there and setting up house, right? I, I might visit there, but that's not where I live. And, um, and, and Chris, at the end of his life, he, he taught me that. One of the foundational descriptions of awe is that it resists description. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you see it by the evidence, right? I don't know if I could come up with a, a definition, but I know it when I see it. And I have that feeling. And it's almost like this recognition. And so I try to exercise that muscle by being grateful. I saw Chris do that. And being grateful when you're in pain is very hard. But the fact that you are able to find it, and then that's like the evidence of it, I think proves that those senses of of awe are all around us. Sometimes I think we don't want to recognize them because there is a pain in it too. And there is a sense of our smallness and our insignificance. And it's a deep, uncomfortable feeling sometimes. I think sometimes we think awe is always exciting and a beautiful sunset and I am important to God, but sometimes our human bodies can't hold it. And I certainly felt this as I watched Chris die. Um, They stretch us in very painful ways to receive more and to feel more um, and recognize more of that awe. Many thanks to Lisa Valentine Clark, host of The Lisa Show here on BYU Radio. Her husband, Christopher Clark, passed away on June 5th, 2020. I'm Marcus Smith. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Audrey Hughes. Sound design was by Dallin Jepson and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. We also heard from Chris's best friend, Ken Craig, and we promised you a little something more from Ken. Here he is reading that poem, which Christopher Clark typed with his eyes back in 2020 using his adaptive lenses as he took in the view from his window. Edgemont. When the Little Rock Canyon split, we poured out, tumbled, rolled, coated the foothills like eiderdown sheets, boulders and loam and thickets of scrub oak. 
We settled, we slept under feathery grass, and waited. Our blankets smelled like sage. One night, a pin pricked our spine, way, way down. Shoshone arrowhead, basil notch, or the shell of a gastropod curled in the brine. We couldn't sleep. We stretched. We rooted our lengthening limbs through the earth and rose up as cherry trees, flowering in March, burdened by June, crying, bend down our branches that our mother might have some. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.